Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, January 12th. Today we have an interview with Nick Seipel. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, he's like sort of our boss, right? Yeah, he is an editor at The Motley Fool, which is another job we both have. Uh, so yeah, he's, uh, he's not like our... Yeah. I don't know. He kind of <laughs> described it as if he's one of the person in the value chain. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was fun to talk to him. But yeah, um, we talk about online dating. We talk about gaming, GameStop, Roblox. It, it is pretty informative, um, yep. and he's got some good takes on it. But before we get to that, what is your story for the week? Yeah, it's going to be the Posh Mark S1 and IPO coming up later this week. Uh, interesting business model going after social commerce, and I think it's going to be fun to talk about. Yeah, definitely. And then I'll be talking about, well, my story is titled The Art of Position Sizing. Yeah, beautiful yeah, title. Good, good. Once again, you have not added a great title, which mm-hmm. you'll um, work on that. Yeah. But uh, And then as always, we have current state of FinTwit, uh, hot water, buy, sell, hold, anecdotal evidence. But before we move on to the show, this is our chance for our sales pitch, which is going incredibly well. Yeah, so thank FYI. you everyone for signing up. Seven Investing loves it. You're going to love it because the service is great and we like it too. So it, it works out for everyone. Um, Plus, yeah. big announcement. What was did you see uh, the big announcement yet? No, I did not. I did not watch it, but they have something new going on. So check out their Twitter feed. I think they talked about it in their video. Um, but yeah, they're all, they're doing new things. I mean, and if you use the code CCM, you get ten dollars off your first month, and it's only seventeen bucks. So. No, yeah, with right. the discount, it's $7 for your first month. So it's basically, you know, it's under 10 bucks to try it out. It's normally 17 bucks. Use the code CCM to get $10 off your first month. We say this every time, but it's great value. I mean, you're oh, getting yeah. all those picks for 7 bucks. Yeah, they really are. I don't want to say mispricing themselves, but the value you're getting out of it is fantastic. Okay, uh, without further ado, here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with the art of position sizing. So Ensemble released their paper this week, as I mentioned earlier, and it sort of detailed how they choose to size their positions. Uh, And basically, they try to combine their approach with qualitative and quantitative thinking. It's obviously not all that unique, but they use sort of five pillars to assess their thinking. And the first thing they talk about is just concentration in general. And so they limit the portfolio to 20 to 25 companies that they know thoroughly. And so when I think of concentration, I usually think a little smaller than 20 or 25. So it kind of had me wondering, do you think a fund's concept of concentration varies depending on how big the analyst team is? Because there's only, it feels like there's only so many names that you can manage at once, so many companies you could have in a portfolio and know deeply. Yeah, I believe they have three lead analysts, uh, Arif, uh, Sean, and Todd, correct? So if they're all doing about eight, that seems reasonable, especially, you know, you could probably be an expert in eight companies and obviously they overlap. Yeah, that, that definitely comes into it. I think, again, uh, the position sizing also comes into it because if you have 20 to 25 companies, but you know, five of them are 50% of the portfolio. It's it's similar to maybe just having, you know, 12 to 15. In yeah. There. Yeah. And they, they don't equal weight. And they talked a little bit about the Kelly criterion. Uh, so if you don't know what that is, it's basically this gambling principle that I think was introduced a while back. 
Uh, but if you know the odds and you know the payoff in gambling, you're able to calculate the right bet size. Obviously, you can't do this exactly in investing because uh, there's no way to know the exact payoff. Um, and there's also no way to know the exact risk either. But do you think everyone is using some sort of variation of the Kelly criterion when they're managing a portfolio? Uh, it applies to everyone because the odds are real, whether you know them or not, or paying attention to them or not. And the payoff of what price you're paying for something, um, again, that is, you know, that is in there, whether you know it or not. So if you, if you use it correctly, or I guess there's no way to really define using it correctly, you can, I mean, say you're using it to your advantage, but um, I think a lot of people may not think about it too much, but it, it definitely affects them and it's something they probably should consider. And if you're someone that does qualitative research and you're not doing a pure quantitative portfolio, like, you know, like a, a value quant type style or something like that, it is something you probably should be paying attention to. Yeah. And I think a lot of people subconsciously are doing it without necessarily defining it so they're kind of just like mentally thinking all right this is obviously riskier but the payoff is much higher if i'm right but they're not sitting there like oh that fits the kelly criterion but uh the second part about this was slow and fast thinking and i think is what they titled titled it uh and so the slow thinking part is where they try to turn their qualitative judgments into a quantitative assessment so they're analyzing the business and kind of breaking it down into three parts. So the first is the return potential, so the upside. Uh, the second is conviction. And the third is the research stage, so where they're at and then the analysis. And they're sort of quantifying each one of those, so trying to put a number on it. Um, and then the fast thinking part is uh, basically they're making actions. They're uh, changing portfolio sizing at speed. So once they have their foundation, once they've done the slow thinking and they have their judgments, they're not leaving any room for cognitive biases. And it's, I think it's a computer that does it, but uh, it's instant when certain price actions happen. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. So if something, if say they're looking for, they'll buy under blank shares or in this range or something like that. If the shares fall to that, they're not forced to make another qualitative judgment. They've already done their research. And then that occurs. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the process here uh, feels very similar to what we are trying to kind of build for our investment style. Because I mean, we re- like I don't know if the order is the same um, because you know the research stage is kind of always going on, and I'm not sure this is just a three step process where you get one to two to three. But I mean, we try to judge the return potential versus our conviction. Like, I mean, it's a huge difference if you think that something has a ninety percent chance. Like, if you're ninety percent sure or maybe 80% sure that something is going to go out favorably favorably in your you know in your favor and the stock is you're expecting the at that price that you're looking at for it to only return 10 to 12% versus something that only has a 10% chance of working out and it could possibly return like 20 to 25%. I mean yeah, I mean you know you might get better returns with the one that has a 10% chance of working out if things work out, but right. you really want to put your money in that in that more the the one where you have higher conviction. Yeah. And do you think it's a good idea to put a number, like assign a number mm. or try to quantify sort of those characteristics or the qualitative assessments of a business? Uh, I don't like to put a number on it. Uh, that's just kind of my style. But I, I mean, if you like to put like a number to try to rank some things, I mean, I think you can have the risk of anchoring to the number, uh, but I don't think there's too many risks. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's, it's not something I like to do. 
Yeah. Okay. I'll get into the step. Uh, I think it's step four, step three. So they take the three inputs from step two. So the uh, upside conviction and the research stage, and they combine them to arrive at a target weight for each company. And Sean said, uh, I have a quote from him here. I think this is from the paper. He said, we never target an allocation to cash. Cash in the portfolio is a residual of the best or of the target weights of the companies we own. Mm-hmm. Is this a good way to look at it as sort of uh, it, when you don't find value, cash is sort of that fallback? Yeah, I think that's a good framework. Um, I'm, I think a lot of people technically do this as well. Where, just without knowing it? Yeah, just, just like, without knowing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good way to go about it. You don't want to have a, yeah, you don't want to start with your cash allocation. The cash allocation should be, all right, do I have, you know, we have a minimum, you know, level of expected returns for our investments, right? And if we can find 100% allocation to those expected returns with not, you know, risking putting all our eggs in one basket or putting all our eggs in too risky of baskets, um, then, you know, the cash balance will go wherever it, you know, should be. It's not something that you should target. You shouldn't target like a 25% cash balance or a 5% cash balance or to be fully invested at all times. I think it should just go whether you have the ideas you're actually comfortable with. You might have a time period, say in March, I mean, this is a shorter time period where you were like, wow, I found a lot of ideas. Like I am just, I can go fully invested or you could have been, you know, still a little bit in cash. And then now there could be a time like now where it's tough, at least in my personal experience, to find good ideas. And it's not like I want to have cash, uh, but it just kind of ends up that way. My only concern with that is that you might end up fully invested because you're like, oh, there's returns here, there's returns here, yeah. each company, and you get to 100% of your portfolio, and stocks can still go down, and like you can't buy at a better price. I feel like for me, I always, uh, I mean, you obviously try to lean up in bad times, but I like having a cash buffer at least always. a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I say fully invested, uh, I would probably that means to me about. Uh, two to four percent cash balance. I mean, when I have a five percent cash balance in my personal account, I I figure that's darn close to being fully invested. Just because, I mean, you you don't want you want to have some you know good liquidity just in case things you know things happen. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I'm sure they think in a similar way, and I'm sure they do have cash or access to liquidity. But that is sort of the it's it's the right way to think. Uh, yeah, is that I agree. I agree. Put money where you can find returns. Um, the fourth step is the adjustments. So their analysis of securities is on an individual basis. So it's not sometimes that target weight that they assume can get over a hundred percent. So they have to peel it back on like a pro rata basis. Okay, so they separate everything out, and then right. they come back together, and it's like, oh, we got to one hundred twenty percent. Let's yeah, yeah, lower. Okay, right. uh, and that's pretty. That's a pretty straightforward step. That makes sense. I didn't really have anything for that. But the fifth step is monitoring. So they keep all weights within 1% of their target weights with automatic buys or sells. This is one that I feel like our listeners, I imagine, might have a little bit of indifferent or sorry, not indifference, uh, different, different Dis- op- opinions on. Yeah. Just that you know, some of the best investors have said they sold winners too early. And so 1% within your target weight means you're probably trimming on your winners pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you like that approach or do you think there's a bit of a balance to where maybe it's okay to keep your winners in that? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have that strict of a target weight, but it works for them. 
Um, maybe they go in with more of a, uh, you know, a weighted percentage at like something that's already like 10 or 12% or something like that, where it could, you know, get to a 20% position rather quickly. And they still have, if they're trimming at 1% of the target weight, um, they still have 10% exposure. But I, I mean, I do know that, you know, the seven investing guys, the Molly Fool style, um, I know we have a lot of listeners that follow that type of, you know, investing investment process. Um, and they've had a lot of success letting your winners ride. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of people with this strategy likely would have taken a lot of chips off the table with Amazon and Netflix. And those are always the classic examples. Uh, and they own but, Netflix, so. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Ensemble does. Yeah. So, I mean, there's give and takes with that. But I think it really, um, it can definitely help with your risk, you know, right? Yeah. And you can always reassess sort of your target weight as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I learned a lot from this paper. I think it's well worth the read. It's and you can probably just find it on like Ensemble, whatever, look up Ensemble Capital and you'll find it on their website, correct? Yeah, it's on their, I think the blog is intrinsicinvesting.com, but it's also on their Twitter and I'm sure there's a million places you can find it. Uh, but what is your story for the week? Yeah, so Poshmark or Poshmark, uh, to be honest, if you're laughing at whatever name sounds right, I'm going to call it Poshmark. They dropped their S1 a little sure bit ago. Posh. posh? You think it's Posh? I think it's Posh. Okay, Poshmark. Uh, so it is a marketplace that is uh, supposed to price later this week and then start trading by the end of this week. So you can see shares um, out on the public markets pretty soon. I'm expecting it to, you know, um, with the current market environment, it's likely going to double and we'll get way past any sort of analysis if I end up thinking that it's a quality company. But uh, the company itself is a marketplace that allows users to buy and sell new and used items. It feels very similar to eBay or Etsy, uh, but with a focus on shoes, clothing, jewelry, and it also has a focus on a social aspect so you can follow people rather easily and interact with them. Mm. It also has a focus on used items more um, than something like, uh, you know, an Amazon or a wish.com or something like that. But it sounds also like, has a focus on sustainability. Yeah, go ahead. It sounds like, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with this, but free and for sale. I don't know. Is that just in college towns or is that, that Yeah, so, it sounds something like that, but more, um, I mean, that's a little more of garage sale. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and this is more of a, say, you're an individual and you got a lot of stuff or you want to start, like, say, managing your closet right? You wear something one okay. time, you want to get rid of it, you sell it to someone else, and then you can also buy things from other people. And then, you know, Postmark, yeah, Postmark takes a uh, take rate. It was founded in 2011 by Manish Chandra, Chandra, I think it is. And uh, she is still the CEO today. A few stats on them. Active users spend 27 minutes a day on the platform in 2019. That's great usage. Um, and people laugh, you know, some people are like, oh, eyeballs, blah, 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 blah. But that's the first step to really getting a marketplace going is getting the demand over there. They had 4.5 million active sellers um, as of end of September 2020, I believe. 6.3 million active buyers, $1.3 billion in GMV the last trailing 12 months. And they had a 20% take rate on items over $15. So that's how their marketplace works. Under $15, it's a flat $295 fee. And then over $15, they have a 20% take rate. So quite large. Um, and their gross margins show it that they are getting a lot of, uh, it's you know, they have no inventory. They have, a, you know, low working capital numbers. And I think they had tiny amounts of liabilities outside some preferred stock that will likely get converted into, uh, you know, common stock during the IPO. Um, so yeah, what do you think so far? It's less like an Etsy than 
uh, and, and more, I guess, balanced between buyers and sellers. So maybe a lot of the sellers are also buyers. No, yeah, they had, they had some stats where I, a good amount, like a really good percentage of the buyers actually transitioned to sellers over time. So it's less of a one-sided and it's like both people interacting with each other. Um, they had $247.5 million in revenue over the past 12 months. That's ending on September 30th, 2020. The tagline for the business is Postmark makes buying and selling simple, social, and fun. And they're changing the world. And no, their mission was okay. I actually can pull up the mission here. It says, put people at the heart of commerce, empowering everyone to thrive. That's not bad. That's not bad, but it's a little, it's, it's, it's about half of a Peloton or a WeWork type, you know, mission statement. It's, yeah. I give it like a, you know, 2.3 stars on a, I, uh, two out of three stars in community adjusted EBITDA numbers. But uh, yeah, back to them. They're going public at an estimated $2.86 billion market cap if the pricing is where, if it sits in their pricing range, which I'd expect it to hit $5 billion in market cap. But at the pricing. What, 10 times sales? Yeah, which uh, I haven't looked at their revenue growth numbers or anything like that, but it seems uh, okay. It seems okay with their gross margin numbers. And they're, already, they're already profitable. Um, so Maybe I'm simplifying it. But it feels like if you have a brand people recognize, your revenue growth is higher than 50% and exclude all profits <laughs> and you come out, you're getting a price to sales above 20. Yeah. I, I would not be surprised to see them get up there. Although it has fallen under the radar with the um, all the geopolitical and stuff going on this week. So maybe, true. maybe there won't be the uh, eyeballs on it. But they have a quote here from the S1. They said, 55% of Gen Z consumers rely on influencers on social platforms to discover new brands. So that's kind of what their push is, where they think they have the differentiation is people follow the users and they sell from them or they buy from them and then they end up selling. And it's kind of a whole mismatch between people following social each commerce. other. Yeah, it is social commerce. Um, in a big way, I feel like one competitor could likely be Instagram. A lot of people think of that. Another competitor could be Pinterest and another competitor could be Etsy. Uh, but it seems different because Etsy is more arts and crafts and this is, you know, clothing, apparel. So it's like Instagram if everyone were trying to sell something. Yeah, 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 it's definitely true. All right, I got a few questions that I thought we could discuss. Regardless of the valuation, does the business model interest you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't really take a deep... I didn't even look at the S1 at all. Um, were they generating any sort of profits? Yeah, they're, they're, they have net profits, cash flow. Uh, I'm not sure. But they're, they're either close to break even on all, all those. And gross profits are very strong or gross I, margin numbers strong. I do think I've had friends that use this. Um, and it does it does feel a little bit like a glorified free and for sale. Um, really? And I think a lot of the people that are selling stuff on Postmark are also selling it on other platforms. Like they're, oh yeah, know. definitely, definitely. Uh, I mean, this is an easy one to get some anecdotal evidence on. You can get the user experience down if you just go on, test it yeah. out, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I haven't used it myself, but yeah, I guess I'd be pretty interested. Yeah. So, do you think there is the need for the social shopping experience online? Because that's their thing. They were saying, you know, shopping used to be social in person. Now with Amazon and all those other people, it's not. So do you think that uh, social commerce has a future? Yeah. And do you think it could be them? I don't know. I have less enthusiasm about social commerce than most, especially like peer-to-peer social commerce. Like if you're you're doing it where like it's like a business on Instagram or a business on Pinterest. Like an already established business. Yeah. I mean, I already take issue with buying things on eBay that are like used. Yeah. 
And so this is sort of so used social commerce. Yeah, it's uh, – I don't know if I that has – for me, I don't know if that's big. Yeah. I, well, I mean – That's me as a consumer though. The numbers might go against everything. Yeah, they said that – I mean I think this is very female-focused. They had over 80% of their users were females and then 80% of the total users are millennials or Gen Z, so basically under 40. Um, so we not, may not be the target market and you probably got to talk to some female friends and see what they've been doing. Uh, but last question before we get to state of the fintwit, do you think COVID gave them a tailwind or a headwind? Because I couldn't really tell because sometimes you think about, you know, all right, people aren't really buying clothes and shoes and stuff, but the online marketplace was one of the only things open. So do you think it was kind of a break even for them or what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think it changed much. Yeah. I will say most of the people that I know that have used it are, yeah, they're clearing out their closet and mm. they're like trying to get a quick buck. But are they, do they come back? Do they have recurring use or is it just, we're doing the one-time thing, we're not going back on this on a weekly basis? No, it's like every time they're trying to get rid of something that they don't mm. want and they're trying to see if they can sell it. Okay. Um, that could be an issue with them, but I still think it's a business to take a look at. The yeah. business model is there. Like The unit economics are definitely there because they want to have zero inventory, have that high take rate, which leads to great gross margins. But we'll yeah. see. We'll see if it has that actual uh, market potential where, I mean, you know, Maybe is it just a really small yeah. niche product? Maybe I'm underestimating it. What about uh, competitors? Competitors? Uh, Do you think there's anybody? I mean, it could be Instagram. I don't know. Sorry, it's hard to say. I got to get some, uh, again, I got to get a user experience on this, but I mean, it could, I, I, I think it could be definitely Instagram. It definitely could be Pinterest. Those feel like the social commerce experiences that could, you know, have a competitive advantage over Poshmark because the users are already there. Yeah, I would – I disagree with the Instagram and Pinterest ones because that's a form of social commerce is more businesses going after people. Okay. Like I'm not okay. getting targeted – like none of my friends on Instagram are targeting me with yep. like trying to sell something. Yep. Whereas Postmark is probably competing more with like Facebook groups and like local, like uh, that kind of thing. Right. Like used stuff, but you know, just put a Silicon Valley spin on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are they from definitely. Silicon Valley? Uh, not sure. I didn't check to be honest. Well, if they're like from, <laughs> I mean, unless they're from Miami, I'm not investing, but. Okay. Um, uh, what else do we have? Current state of Fintwit? Yeah, so. I got a lot. Uh, uh, you can go first, then. You go first. Okay. Uh, so censorship was a huge topic this week, and I'm not going <laughs> to talk about like the whole political debate around the, it. The moral debate or whatever it had been. But I, you did start to notice the power of like the supply chain on some of these businesses, especially with the whole parlor debacle. Oh, with AWS? Yeah. Oh, yeah and there's yeah. also the Twilio thing where they can cut off access to those. To those types of things. Yeah, Twilio has power, too. It's like uh, AWS could shut off the lights on a lot of businesses if they mm -hmm. if the terms and conditions or whatever are violated. Yeah, that's true. Um, it seems like they have you know fairly lenient terms, uh, right? Yeah. But the, I mean, I guess it shows why Facebook does their own servers and why someone like Roblox using their own servers, people complain. They're like, ah, oh, Roblox is spending like a hundred million dollars on capex and stuff. And they're like, well, I mean, now they have their own ecosystem and now no yeah. one can tell them what to do. I think with social platforms that have this risk, I think Twitter, I'm not sure if they use AWS or Azure or something like that. I think they have their own. I have um, no idea. But it just shows, I mean, 
it shows the resiliency, the, the anti-fragility, as people like to coin, of uh, something that's using everything within their own ecosystem. Yeah, I agree. And it started to, uh, there was a tweet from Jeff Fisher, who runs, Ma, I believe, a fund from the yeah. Molly Fool. Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, and he said, greater regulation of social media will make it more expensive to operate the services in a compliant manner. This favors the large companies already in the lead and imperils the small. The large win again. It's another example of why companies rush to scale. Do you think heavy regulation is going to force or maybe just in general do you think social media will go the way of tobacco companies where mm-hmm. regulation sort of insulates them mm, i think you can make that argument in theory it sounds good i um, mean it may apply i think to twitter but we've seen the evolution of facebook instagram uh, snapchat is uh, i'm not an expert on it all but but it doesn't see- cost much to be compliant right now i know i know but force uh, that is true where if the the regular i mean if it costs just millions and millions of dollars i i, th- I don't think it would be that expensive but say yeah. it's like you know 100 million dollars i mean yeah no one's going to start up but i, I don't know i mean I, it seems a little i mean it doesn't seem far-fetched but i i'm having a tough time getting convinced because the social networks seem to be inherently you know demographic driven they all start out with like College age kids, right? Or a niche or something. Or a niche. Yeah. They start out with, you know, uh, they. I guess a lot of times they start out with like 12 to 21 year olds. And it yeah. expands to the older demographic. And then a new one starts, 12 to 21 year olds go on. So now the 12 to 21 year olds are on TikTok, right? Yeah. The 21 to 41 year, 21 to 40 year olds are on Instagram. And, you know, the main people that are using Facebook are like 35 and up now. At least in the United States. Yeah. It feels to me like that is a lot different than just cigarettes who are forced not to advertise. Yeah, I guess. But there's also the cost of having a legal team. Like these guys can afford to go to court and have all the regulatory scrutiny. Whereas if I'm a startup or I'm like a few guys in a dorm and I'm like, all right, yeah, here's this like new app that we can share our thoughts on. And then – Regulation cracks down. Yeah, I think the catch. Yeah, no, that is a good point. But I think the catch twenty two might be that you're the only way you're going to get. You know, the parlor situation seems a little bit special. It seems like a special situation with the whole you know terrorist stuff. The catalyst. Yeah. There. Yes. That I think that is a special situation. But in regards to getting regulated, unless they do it for anyone that's even starting up a social company. Once you get to the scale, that's when the scrutiny comes. And then once you have the scale, you're going to have the be, you know the funds to be able to battle this. So I think it kind of just works hand in hand where you're not going to get scrutinized until you get to, say, 100 million users or 50 million users. And then when you get there, you have the ability to raise the VC round or raise yeah. whatever. Then you'll be able to defend yourself. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense at all? Yeah, I'm just curious that there's maybe higher barriers to entry than that. Like, mm, like Maybe, maybe there's- possibly. A hurdle before you get to scale. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I mean, it could, it could occur though. I think it could occur, um, but I don't think it's as certain as the tobacco industries whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. What else did you ha- uh, did you have for? Okay, I think I think this one's gonna be fun. This one is uh, it's it's based on Twitter, but it's also based on the show. Uh, so I think I'm going to try to do a month long detox from not mentioning either a. Tesla or B, Bitcoin. 
I'm going to do a competition with myself. Have fun with that. Yeah. So it's going to be, uh, it's like a fast. It's like intermittent fasting. I will uh, not be participating. So yeah, you can participate. Lent. You can say it whatsoever. It's basically, yeah, Lent. I'm giving up Tesla and Bitcoin for Lent. Um, <laughs> but uh, so the rules I have is, again, can't mention them by name, uh, obviously, and no jokes alluding to them. So no calling, you know, digital tulip bulbs or the EV company or whatever the fraudulent EV company is. People like to say, uh, and I'll start this on January 12th and see if I can go till February 12th. Uh, so no tweets or mention about it on the podcast. Um, going to be right. pretty tough. I'm ready for this. What happens if you break it? What happens if I break it? I don't know. You got to buy calls or you have to buy Bitcoin. Uh, I have, No, that's, that'd be too expensive. Uh, I take, I mean, I guess I can buy like five bucks worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> well, you're already getting it for free on the cash app. Yeah, but I immediately sell those. So Okay. All right. Um, I think that's all we have for that. Next, we have our uh, interview with Nick Seipel. So mm-hmm. any big highlights from the discussion? Yeah. I mean, he's not like a trained analyst or CFA you know, type deal by any ways. He's very Motley Fool style. Um, and he's actually an editor over there. So he has a lot of experience with the way they like to invest. But I think his frameworks for investing, you know, whether he's He's not like a big, you know, DCF guy or whatever, like, oh, I have this price target on this. But his qualitative thinking is strong for these businesses. And, yeah, the GameStop is very interesting. He's Um, observant. Like, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot more than that to invest well. Yeah, I mean, the hurdle to, yeah. I mean, have a little bit of valuation discipline and be observant. Yeah. And we talk about match.com or sorry, match group. And we talk about um, just the dating, online dating in general. And we talk about Roblox, which listeners, you know, a lot of people, they've heard us discuss those two companies a lot, but you probably haven't heard anything about GameStop. And we talk about that, which I thought was the most, the most fascinating part of the discussion. Yeah. I'd have to agree with that. Uh, But here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, today we are welcomed by Nick Seipel. You might recognize his voice if you listen to Thursday's Industry Focus show. Nick, this is your first time on Chit Chat Money, so welcome to the show. Awesome. Great to be on here uh, with you guys. Yeah, Ryan met you this summer when you were interning at The Motley Fool. So uh, excited to get invited on the podcast. I guess we hit it off well enough that you, you, know, you wanted to talk to me again. So, so I, guess, I guess that's good. Uh, but yeah, excited to be here with you guys. Definitely. A um, little bit of background for you. How did you get into finance like, to begin with? Uh, and then what, sort of, what was your course to The Motley Fool? Yeah. So it's kind of funny you say like get into finance. I don't think of myself as like a finance person. I'm wearing like a Kramer from Seinfeld sweatshirt right now. And like, you know, I don't know when the last time I wore a suit or whatever, but, um, but yeah. So as far as kind of getting into stocks and investing and working at the Motley Fool, kind of a, a winding road for me. So, you know, my whole life, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. The path is always go to law school, I actually graduated from law school um, before I came to the Motley Fool. I wasn't really uh, kind of super into investing until until I got into um, until I got into law school, a buddy of mine, uh, Austin, one of my best friends, was reading Peter Lynch's uh, The One Up on Wall Street book, picked that up and really kind of ran with it um, ever since. It's kind of kind of funny, like, uh, you know, my mom always said, like, you know, um, 
the stock market is legalized gambling, like don't do it. So it's one of those things I never really uh, uh, paid it, paid a ton of attention to. But, uh, you know, I went to college, always wanted to go to law school. Like I said, she forced me to get a double major. So in case I wanted to get a real job, major in econ was one of the things that really clicked for me um, as well. You talk about the legalized gambling thing. Um, Alabama is where I grew up, right? Number one state in the, in the union for uh, illegal sports betting per capita. Definitely did a lot of that um, kind of in college, kind of coming up. And that taught me how to kind of uh, handle losses and kind of think numerically. I was always like kind of a big card player, like played spades and hearts and all those things in high school. So, so that's kind of the background I brought to it. I've kind of had this, this kind of economics training, always wanted to be a lawyer, um, kind of picked up investing, you know, with the Peter Lynch school. Um, and then, you know, kind of in law school, you know, after, after your first and second year, you go clerk and work for a law firm. You kind of do what you're going to do when you go out uh, to practice law. And I was like, man, this isn't that great. I was ready for my clerkship to be over. Um, I was paying attention to my stocks and, you know, learning about uh, the stock market, all those sorts of things. Um, How I Found the Motley Fool is, you know, kind of a similar thing. My buddy Austin was like, hey, you know, uh, you should check out these podcasts, right? Motley Fool Money, uh, Market Foolery, all those sorts of things. Um, check them out. That's kind of was a big part of my learning. I think David Gardner really clicked for me in, in a similar way uh, to how Peter Lynch does of, you know, there's a few basic things you want to look for um, in a company and, you know, buy the things you know and you understand and you can get kind of get incredible gains. So, so that brought me to the Motley Fool. And so, I, you know, I had this idea of, you know, maybe I want to do investing. Maybe that's this is an area that I have a little bit more interest in than law. And so one day I looked at the job board the Motley Fool had out um, available and there was a job for editor analyst. I'd been on the, uh, the lower view at, at the law school. So I felt I had a little bit of editing experience that I could bring to the table. And I knew enough to be dangerous um, on stocks to kind of check the box uh, mm-hmm. that they would need uh, for that job. And so, you know, kind of came there, um, you know, the podcast opened up a little bit after that. And that's been a great opportunity to learn and, and talk to really, really smart people. You know, everybody I talk to every week is smarter than me on the topic they're talking about. Uh, and if you do that long enough every week, I'm sure you all know from hosting this show, uh, you get a little bit smarter every day. So, you know, I'm still I don't think you can ever be an expert in the stock market, but I'll tell you for sure, I'm far from it, but um, definitely come a long way in the past few years from, uh, you know, kind of picking up investing now, being someone that has to talk about it on a regular basis and get asked to do uh, podcasts with people. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Do you think, you know, you said you're not a finance guy. Uh, Do you think being a lawyer or I guess going to law school has helped you at all with investing, Um, you know, investigating things, reading reports, stuff like that? Um. I mean, you know, is there any like, oh, yeah, because of this statute, I have some special insight yeah. into a company. I would say no, uh, not at all. I, but I would say as far as, you know, being analytical and I think it, the big thing law school teaches you about is like, all right, these are the these are the three things you're looking for. Like these are the elements of the crime or these are the things that I have to prove to win my case, figuring out these are the three or four things that are, that's important and figuring out how to filter through things to, to find those those aspects, I think, is valuable. I, you know, the, law, the legal field is very analytical. Uh, in general, and I think you know uh, you need to be analytical as someone who looks at looks at stocks. But uh, you know, I, I, there wasn't anything like, oh yeah, I know this law is going to pass, so you got to buy this stock. But as far as kind of a mindset and, and an analytical style, sure, I think it's helpful. Okay, and uh, do you can you describe your style at all? I know if you're you know you're at the Molly Fool, so you probably have a you know maybe a bias towards investing in individual companies, but. Of those individual companies, where do you lean? Do you go for those heavy growthier names, kind of the rule breaker style, or are you more of the traditional value stuff and quality? 
I don't know. I, I, I shop from from kind of all, all the buckets. I think, you know, I've, I've tweeted about this. I think, you know, putting yourself in like I'm a value guy or like I'm a growth guy, I think kind of is limiting for yourself. I think if there's an attractive opportunity out there, I'll, I'll go invest in it. I think in general, as far as approach, like I said, I like the rule breaker, kind of David Gardner approach. If you look for these companies that are first movers in their space, that can really be, be dominant. And I think the Peter Lynch school, I think is, is helpful as well. Things that you can understand, like sometimes, and I think Buffett's talked about this too, you know, the qualitative insights are where you can really make some, some incredible gains in the stock market. And there's not a lot of things that I understand, but I think that there's a few areas where I can get some insights just by kind of living my life and using my common sense. Um, that, uh, that those are kind of the opportunities I, I look for stuff that kind of jumps out and whacks you in the head. Um, how do you generate most of your ideas? And then sort of what does the process after that look like? So uh, after you have something that's sort of interesting, do you have structured process before you buy something or is it kind of rough? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I have some like incredibly structured process. If you put in 1% here and then you put in a half percent here or, or anything like that, as far as discovering ideas, I, I kind of just try to live my life and kind of see the things that, that kind of bubble up to me. So, you know, my fiance is a fifth grade teacher. I'm hearing about what the, what the 10 and 11 year olds are doing every single day, uh, which is always very interesting. She's super active on Pinterest and Etsy and all, all these platforms. So I'm paying attention to what she's doing. You know, like we said off the top, I, I work at The Motley Fool and, and edit a lot of the articles going on to, to the website. So just by the nature of my job, there's just constantly different opinions and ideas getting thrown at me um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, every once in a while, there's a thing that whacks you in the head and says, oh my gosh, uh, this is something I have to learn more about. And whenever those things happen, I try to I try to nail those things down. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll do the, you know, buy one share of, of a position to force myself to go do the research. Because I know, you know, you'll, you'll probably this way sometimes where you'll, you'll get so many things that you want to look into and they never actually take the time uh, to do it. But as far as kind of building out a position, I don't want to ever have my initial position being over 5%. I just think that that's kind of a, a comfortable number for me. Usually it's about one or 2%. Um, and, you know, sometimes like if I think it's so like unity this year came public and I thought the valuation was kind of ridiculous, but when you look at the, the company itself, the prospects it has going into the future lots of optionality, really dominant, um, in online gaming, um, it came public. I put 1% into it. We're going to watch it for a year and see what happens. I think that's kind of a, a kind of a foolish approach um, to, to doing things. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there, there's not like some incredible science to, to how, how I build things out, but it's kind of how I feel based on, on risk. And then, you know, is this idea just an obvious whack me over the head, um, a head idea? If it's not, then generally I just will stop paying attention and just let it, let it pass by most of the time. Okay. Yeah. I think we're, we're going to talk about two sort of industries slash companies specifically, and that's online dating and gaming. Uh, Cause you've been somewhat vocal about online dating on Twitter uh, and match, I think is one of the only online dating public companies. I might be wrong. Yeah. You, is that? You're correct. You're correct. Um, so what excites you about match? And then um, something that we we're both sort of bullish on match. And we've thought a lot about competitive advantages um, and what's to stop you know, a smaller dating app from coming up and stealing market share from Tinder and Hinge. So do you think Match has any significant competitive advantages? Sure. So yeah, I'll, you know, am I excited about Match? Sure. Yeah, I've been kind of vocal about this. So I think probably like a lot of people, um, you know, if you've read the, the Tyro Partners, Dan McMurtry's paper they put out on, on online dating last year, I mean, there's a lot of things that I kind of observed in the world about how, how people date one another and ghosting and all, all these different things. That paper really just you know, checked all those boxes of like, yeah, that explains all these things I'm seeing in the world that, that just didn't make sense, make sense to me. Um, and like you said, match is pretty much the only player, um, 
of significance, right? You've got Match, uh, which is like a $40 billion valuation. I haven't checked it today, but, you know, something in the $40 billion valuation range. Other than that, you've got Spark Networks, which is the company that owns Christian Mingle, JDate, and Zeusk that has $125 million market cap. And you've got Bumble, has about an $8 billion market cap. So Match 5X bigger than its next closest competitor. But the big thing is you look at that online online dating paper, there's, there's really kind of three things that I, I thought was interesting about Match. First off, I mean, the online dating space itself is a rocket ship. So the if you don't, you don't have to read the, the, you know, the Tarot Partners paper, if you just look at the that second chart they have in there where there's this red line, Met Online going straight up to the right. You got this other line uh, that, that's curving up of, of Met in a Bora restaurant, which is all these people lying about the fact that they that they met online. If you, if you do yeah. some of the data there, it's like, it's like uh, you know, two thirds or, or three fourths of people are, are meeting online. That That's where people uh, are, are finding new dates all those sorts of things. Obviously, in 2020, that's got to be even more so because real dating was canceled, right? I mean, I, I'm getting married in six months. I haven't been on any, on any of these apps, but I imagine if you're someone who's dating and you want to find dates, the only place you can really go is online dating. So we already had this kind of rocket trip trend um, in place. And then we, I'm sure we had this pulled forward in a really significant way um, this year. And then two, as you said, um, Match is really the, the giant gorilla in the room. There's really nobody else of significance uh, to, to go up against them with the exception of, of Bumble. And again, Bumble is one property up against Match, which has Hinge and Tinder and plenty of Fitch and the Match uh, match namesake platform, all those sorts of things. So so you've got this, this giant gorilla in a market that, that's just a rocket ship. And then third, the last thing you got to think about is like, all right, fine, you've got a monopoly on this market that, that's going to get huge. And I think it's, you know, you could squint and say the Match, you know, has the better, the makings of a monopoly. Okay, well, how valuable is this monopoly? How valuable are, are these customers? Well, the thing I think is really interesting about MASH that I think is, is maybe kind of an insight that I've had, I don't think it's a unique one at all, but um, is this idea. So if you look at MASH, who are the paying customers, right? Who are the folks that, that are paying to be on the platform? It's obviously men. You look at all the data around you know, how men rate women, uh, the rate at which women get matches compared to men. Women just get that many more matches. There's really no reason for the women to pay for extra swipes or any of these sorts of things. The other way you can tell uh, that the target market is is men. Have you ever have you looked at Tinder's Twitter bio? No, uh, I have not. No. That's... Okay. Well, Tinder's Twitter bio is "Hey you up?" question mark eighteen plus. Who do you think sends the most "Hey you up?" texts? Definitely men. Definitely men. Yeah, definitely. I'd say definitely men. Right. So the target market, the target market is men. Like no, yeah. no doubt about that. Those are the people who they're who they're going for. Hinge, just just for another example, the dating app designed to be deleted. I think obviously a different market than the "Are you up?" Uh, question mark uh, 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 description. So anyway, so yeah, so you've got men, right? So this is the place where uh, we talk about all the people are meeting online. They control all the platforms uh, of significance. That's the place where you go to find dates. If you know anything about men, I don't know if you've ever been to a bar, but the first time, you know, whenever my friends were like, hey, you want to go to a bar? And I was in college. The question was, where are the chicks at? That's the place you want to go. Well, they own all the platforms where the chicks are at. Okay, they control the supply. And so men are going to come uh, to the platform. And then the last thing is, so, so right. So the men are the paying customers on the platform. What's their ability to pay? And I think one thing that just if you are a user of the internet on a regular basis, I think one takeaway you can reach is just thirsty dudes do incredible things on a regular basis and they always surprise you to the upside. So I mean, yeah. you can look at OnlyFans this year and how big that thing has gotten from zero. You can go on uh, go on Reddit. I don't know if you've ever been on the, the subreddit called R Creepy Asterisks. That's one of the weirdest things you've ever seen, but it's like basically just a bunch of weird kind of dudes on there. Um, and so my, my, my thing there is just, they're always going to surprise you on the upside with their ability to pay. So they, so Match has a monopoly on this market that's huge and growing. 
I think if you have a monopoly on uh, on you know, kind of how people meet and date, that's worth much more than $40 billion. What's the upside on that? I don't know, but I will just tell you that whatever dollar amount I think dudes are willing to spend to find dates online or, or any of these sorts of thing, it's higher than whatever my estimate is. And so for, for that reason, I, I think Match is a, is a compelling investment. You talk about competitive advantages. I think part of it is just scale network effect, right? I mean, it, what, so do y'all, do y'all use online dating? Yeah. I mean, we use the various, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah we do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What, what platforms do you use? Hinge. Yeah, yeah, hinge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're uh, if you're not the uh, hot commodity, you gotta you know lower, <laughs> lower the playing field to get on hinge, you know, or get off. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Other than other than that, that's where you have to go. That's where that's yeah. where the people are. Right. I yeah. mean, um, the other thing to think about is so, so they've already got this huge network effect, and if you're going to find online dating, like they're the place you go. Uh, that's the place where everybody is. So so that you know that's that's necessarily a, a big network effect. Um, the other thing I would say is the swipe. Like what is what's form factor is going to change from the swipe, right? What's going to be the technological innovation that comes and takes significant share from Match that draws all these people away from where the audience is, right? Because everybody wants to go to the bar where the people are. Nobody yeah. wants to go to the bar where nobody is at. So I think this is true true for any of these social networks, but I think it's you know just that basic dynamic of people want to go where people are is definitely true um, for online dating. Um, yeah, the last thing I wanted to say is just like the advertising, right? So, so with the whole name of the game is this, is you want to be where the people are, right? And so the, the name of the game is just attracting customers. You see that in lots of places. I think sports betting is a great example of where it's just an advertising game right now. I don't know if y'all have seen like the, the, the match, you know, uh, 2021 dating ad with the devil and like all that stuff. Yeah, they had the um, famous actor, correct? Yeah, Ryan Reynolds is now on correct. the board. Yeah. That was his yeah. production company um, that made that advertisement. Um, my mom like called me the other day and was like, Hey, have you seen this? Have you seen this match oh, ad? Really? Like this thing is hilarious. Like da, 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 da. Um, so you've got this company that already is essentially the giant gorilla in the room has all the platforms is the bar where all the people are. And then they've got like advertisement that is just incredibly quality. They've got, I, I think Ryan Reynolds is, is a genius. You talk about how, like, you know, look at, he took Deadpool, wasn't even going to get made. And he turned it into this huge franchise. I've got my mom talking to me about an ad for an online dating company because it was so good. I, I think when you layer on, they already have this huge advantage of just having the most people and being the well-known brand. If you layer on top, what I, what I think is just incredible advertising, I, I just don't know how you compete with them. Um, maybe somebody can, and if, if they do, then maybe the thesis changes. But I, this is one of those companies where if you gave me infinity money and said, go displace match group, absent just starting to give people money to join my app, I, I don't know what, what the first place would be where I'd go to start. It's just a very difficult company to compete with. I just wouldn't want to bet against them. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a, a real example of that. Uh, what was it, three years ago, maybe two years ago, Facebook announced Facebook dating. Uh, Match Group took a giant hit because at that time, whenever some big tech company announced they were going into a business, you know, the company that they were competing with would probably drop 20%. But do you think that's a good indicator that Match has just an inherent competitive advantage with the products they have and with the business model they have, because if Facebook can't compete with you specifically, and I mean, I guess it was based on Facebook. It wasn't really like Instagram going after it. If they can't go after the dating market with all the relationship knowledge they have, um, I mean, who can't? Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
there, there's lots of people that are going to try to compete with them because dating is worth a whole lot of money. I think one observation there is just that sooner or later, every social media app is a dating app. So like Facebook is already competing with Match. Right, like right. people are already sliding in the DMs left, right and center on, on Tinder and, and Facebook and Instagram and all those sorts of places. Yet they still choose, you know, Match is the place where they're going to go kind of swipe. I, I think there's, you know, the instinct of a lot of people. Well, here's a question for you all. Whenever, you know, you're, you're kind of college age, whenever you had someone that you knew that came up in your little kind of uh, spin wheel of people on an online dating app. How would you react when you saw that? Oh, yeah. You, you, I think the natural reaction is to just ignore it. You, you want to keep that separate. It's, it's like the, I think McMurtry's talked about this before on interviews where it's uh, dating within your friend group is getting harder and harder to do because yeah. it just can ruin that over the long term. I totally see where he's coming from with that. We have, we have a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence I have for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I listen. Yeah. And I, and I don't think like it takes some, this is kind of why I like the Peter Lynch approach. Like you just live your life. Like who is the target demographic for online dating? It's people like you guys that are like the, their young twenties that are in the dating market. Like this is, this is the people, if there's anybody that's going to understand when this is losing and when something else is taking over, it's all the people that are in this demographic. I think that's the other thing that kind of makes this kind of an exciting investment is, you know, if you're 30 and under, you have an insight on on kind of the online dating category in a way that really not a lot of people have. Like, not a lot of people that are running, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars spend any time on this platform, right? They're going to have to like talk to their kids or something like that. But on a day to day basis, I just talk to my friends, and he's like, "Yeah, I've been on Hinge, and like, you know, Hinge is better for this, this, that, and the other reason." Um, I, I think some of this is just kind of common sense and, and looking around. I I haven't seen anything come up you know, in the past five years that I think is a really significant threat to what Tinder has going. Maybe that maybe something else shows up on, on, you know, on the, on the board, but I don't know. Yeah. And I guess one question with COVID, um, you know, you mentioned that you, it, COVID made it so that the dating apps were the only place that people could go. However, there's the flip side of that where it, going on the actual dates, you know, was you couldn't really do that during quarantine. Do you think COVID has changed anything at all? Where I kind of think of it where, you know, you have Hinge, you have Tinder, they're going to have a ton of growth from usage and then no one's going to really be able to go on dates during COVID. But then post COVID, they're already going to be on the apps and then they can use them to go on the actual dates themselves. Do you think about that at all? So as in like, are, is that like, are the people who kind of came onto the app because of COVID going, yeah, like, going forward? Yeah, because uh, it's tough looking at them now. Like you can't go on, you can't go on an actual date, or you haven't been able to since March, and you probably won't for the next few months. And so that might people might think, all right, well, the dating apps aren't going to be useful. But if all the users get onto these apps, and then when they actually can go back and be, you know, physically dating and go meeting people or whatever the stuff you want to do, your end goal with using one of these apps. Um, I don't know. I just think it could be more valuable. might be a weird theory, but. Well, so there's people that have talked about, all right, so now that people are going on actual dates, restaurants, are they going to, I mean, when I, when I talked to the, the uh, Tyro folks on the, on the podcast, they talked about, um, you know, there's an opportunity for, could you potentially uh, move uh, customers to restaurants and things like that, you know, as part of your date yeah. or what have you. I, I think there's certainly opportunities as things reopen because uh, you have these people and say, hey, there are these people that want to meet, you know, maybe I can send them to your bar or restaurant um, or what have you. I, I don't know. The big thing I know is they're dominant in online dating and I don't think that trend is going to reverse. Um, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to dislodge them and there's lots of opportunities for different ways they can extract money out of this relationship with folks of how they connect people. 
Um, so I think whatever happens, I think the opportunity in online dating is only getting bigger year after year after year. Um, and it's just a question of them figuring out more and more ways to monetize that, whether that's finding, you know, more ways to get dudes to pay for things on the platform. Like, like the thing that blows my mind, people are paying for read receipts, like to pay to be able to know that somebody read your <laughs> message and hasn't responded to you. People are paying money for this today, which is just insane. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm sure I will be surprised at the ways they're able to extract money from users in the future as, as well. That, that's kind of, I, I, I don't know how things look different in, in the future, but I think it's going to be bigger and they're going to extract more and more money. Right. That makes sense. And then if you look at the ARPU number, it, um, it, I mean, it's tough to quantify what is a low number versus a high number. If you look right now, it's below a dollar, I think, either on a monthly or quarterly basis. Um, I mean, you just kind of feel like that can go up by a lot over time. Uh, what, what about Bumble? I know they haven't gone public yet. I don't even think the S1 has been released, but is that something that interests you? Are you more uh, inclined? I mean, Match is obviously more of a conglomerate. It has sort of an amalgamation of different apps within it. I think Bumble, Bumble is just the one app. Is that still something that would interest you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in in Bumble. I haven't really been much of a user, like I said. I, you know, I'm getting married in in six months. Bumble was just kind of coming up. Last time I was on uh, the dating market, uh, that's that's another one where I might answer your question with a question. I mean, what do you all think about Bumble? Like, what are the pros and cons of it versus Hinge? You mentioned Hinge earlier. Uh, I mean, Product wise, I don't think I've I've never been on Bumble. Yeah, so me neither. I but I know a lot of friends use it. Um, it definitely just seems just as big as either Tinder or um, Hinge, but it's not like they're clearly better. Um, they have that you know woman first thing for the response. I think it's a lot of people on there. Um, but as long as it doesn't hurt, and I'm kind of thinking of someone who's a potential match shareholder. As long as it doesn't hurt matches numbers, if they continue to grow their users and through their various apps, I mean it's not a winner take all market as we've seen, you know, yeah, everyone has their different niches. So I don't think it's a concern. Yeah. That, that's kind of, I, I feel a similar way. I would say like, you know, you mentioned earlier how important I think women are and attracting women to the platform are for success for any of these. Um, so I think their women first focus, maybe, maybe, you know, to the extent I have to look at the S one whenever they file, but to the extent they're, they're actually, is some meaningful data that they're attracting or keeping more women on the platform. I think that's valuable. I think everybody has been, I used the bar analogy earlier, but I think everybody's been at a bar where it's, you know, all dudes there and nobody likes that. And so, it, and nobody's yeah. going to want to like a dating app that has all dudes on the platform. So obviously, you know, men are important for spending, but people are only going to spend money to be able to talk to women. So to the extent that they're able to use that kind of women first approach to, um, to attract more women to the platform or keep more women on the platform, obviously puts them in an interesting uh, position. And I think the whole online dating theme, like I said, uh, you know, that, that one chart from, um, from the Tyro Partners paper, it's just, I, I want to ride that growth trend, right? I think that there's a quote from Jeff Bezos in the 90s where he's like, why'd you go start Amazon? And he said, well, one day I was just looking through data when I was working at the, you know, the hedge fund. Um, and I saw this chart of uh, internet use usage growth up year over year. And it was some insane bananas number. And he said, I have to figure out a way to find a business plan to get into this kind of opportunity. And I, and I think online dating is a similar opportunity. I'm not Jeff Bezos. He's much smarter than me. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a rocket ship that I want to have a ticket on. Right. Uh, we can just outsource that growth to the, uh, the match executive team. They can worry about <laughs> figuring all that stuff yeah. out. But uh, we'll transition to our second topic here. It is gaming. Specifically, we're going to be talking Roblox and GameStop, uh, two you know, completely different companies, but I think they're both interesting. So first up is Roblox. Uh, they just received another round of funding at, I think, a $30 billion private valuation. Uh, obviously, we don't know the valuation is going to be when they go public. I know they're going to do a direct listing, but 
in this market, you know, if they list at 30 billion, it could easily double the first day. Uh, does Roblox interest you? And are you thinking about any market cap or is it just kind of a, you know, similar to match where you see the growth story and uh, you want to just, you know, attach your wagon to it? Yeah, probably similar more in the second bucket. We don't know what it's going to come out. And like, I guess the market's going to decide what it comes out at that private, that private money valuation, which is, I guess, I guess the takeaways from some people is, and I, I tend to agree with it, is that that kind of sets a floor underneath what, what's going to yeah. happen with this direct listing, right? The market has to go decide uh, what it's worth, but they've kind of set a floor at this $29.5, uh, $30 billion valuation number where it's going to shoot out um, from there. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier Unity, where I kind of put 1% in it because I, I think this is a rocket ship and, you know, has a lot of opportunity. Um, probably going to do the same thing, uh, and it's probably going to shoot off to the moon, um, just like just like Unity has done, um, although... You know, there's no way the growth can can match what happened in 2020. If they can match 2020 growth in 2021, then I don't even know what number they, they should be worth. Yeah. They should be worth a ton. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it, it's similar to what I was saying with Match. You want to be where the people are, okay? Um, you know, that's like, what is that like Little Mermaid? I think she said that. Um, but uh, <laughs> for, so it's two thirds of kids uh, between nine and twelve use Roblox. So just think about if you're a kid in the in in a fifth grade classroom, which is you know what my fiance Lacey teaches, right? If there's 30 kids in your classroom and 20 of them are on Roblox, hanging out with one another, kind of discussing, doing different things, playing games, and you're, you know, in that other group of 10 kids who's not on there, you sure as heck want to be on that platform. And you see lots of different data and surveys of, of kids that say, hey, I want, I want to, you know, Roblox bucks instead of candy or what have you. Um, for Christmas, I've got, like I said, uh, you know, we we're work from home. And so I've got, you know, the, the one end of the fifth grade class over here. So I get to hear the kids. Sometimes there's a kid yesterday who said, yeah, I'm on Roblox every single day talking with my friends. Okay. Like I used to be a Minecraft kid and now I'm, now I'm on Roblox. I think it's another one where you just don't realize how big these games can get. So, you know, I'm 28. I remember being in high school, I played Minecraft when it was in beta, like before they had any of the, you know, Anyway, there's all kind of stuff in it now where you like eat food and this, that, and the other. Back then it was just like very, very basic, like a few yeah. creatures and stuff like that. And you're kind of just surviving in the world. And now this has become, you know, one of the most popular games in the world with massive amounts spent on it. Microsoft acquired it for a billion dollars. And I'm sure it's worth some multiple of that um, today. I, I just, in, in my experience, some of these, these platforms have just so much more growth um, than, than you'd expect. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Roblox is one of these, you know, rocket ship, companies that if you talk to any kid, like any of those kids in that, uh, you know, 10 and 11 demographic, they're on that platform and they're spending massive amounts of time on there. That's how you interact with your friends. And, uh, you know, I'd love to own that relationship. The other thing is <laughs> everything, everything people buy and sell on the platform is in Robux and they set the exchange rate. So, I mean, yeah. that's a huge option. That's a huge uh, thing to have in your back pocket uh, any given day to be able to control um, as an organization. Like, I don't think they're going to use that for ill or anything like that, but gosh, that's, I mean, there's not a lot of companies that have that type of leverage, uh, you know, over their operations and can, you know, make those types of decisions that'll change how much money they make. Yeah. I mean, there was that uh, viral, I think it was, you know, FinTalk investors, that Twitter account that likes to, uh, <laughs> show videos of, uh, you know, young people talking on uh, TikTok about, you know, investing. And he said, look, there was a kid on there that said, all right, guys, they make all their money on Robux. So if we just buy the IPO and then we just buy a bunch of Robux, we're going to be rich. Now that logic may have been misconstrued, <laughs> but the fact that they make money when people buy these virtual dollars that don't cost them very much money at all seems like a very strong business model. Uh, do you think that I mean, I don't know how deep you are into the gaming investing, but do you think that they can be this uh, concept of the metaverse? I know a lot of different companies have kind of taken a stab at it. We've had 
Chris Seifel on the show who said he thinks Unity can be sort of the leader that's tooling that. Uh, do you think Roblox kind of has the purest play at being the true metaverse? I'm putting it in air quotes here if you can't see me, but. Yeah, um, maybe, I, you know, best chance, I don't know. I certainly think that they do have a chance. I think the people with that are probably most likely to be able to give you a correct answer to this question are those people between like nine and 12, the people that are on Fortnite and uh, and Roblox and all these sorts of things every day would probably be able to give you some great insight. Um, I don't have, one thing I do think is, is, is interesting though is clearly um, Roblox is trying to go after this opportunity. So their, their founder, um, and CEO put out a paper recently that was about, you know, we're going after the, the, the this multiverse opportunity. When I think of the, you know, uh, what is it, metaverse thing, I just think it's kind of just the next evolution of, of social media, right? So Facebook started out as it was this, you put stuff on your wall, Twitter used to talk about what you ate for lunch, and then it grew into this whole, you know, thing that Twitter is today, how people like me and you can connect and, and you know, some people can for some reason, think I have a really intelligent opinion about stocks and listen to me uh, <laughs> talk about stuff. Um, and, I, and I think Roblox is kind of is trying to form a, a similar social platform. There's a quote from uh, Eugene Wei. I think great a great paper everybody should read. Who's an investor? I mean, anything Eugene Wei writes is great. But he wrote a paper a couple of years ago called "Invisible Asymptotes." That I think is fantastic. But there's a quote from there. It says there's this general pattern among social networks and products in general to broaden their appeal. They tend to broaden their use cases. It's rare to see a product product adhere strictly to its early specificity and still avoid hitting a shoulder in their adoption S curve. And so if you think about okay, Roblox is a social platform, kind of like Facebook or Twitter or any of these others. It started out as this game where nine, 10 and 11 year olds interacted, uh, kind of spent their time on the platform. And over time, it's growing uh, to offer these other things, right? Where we had the uh, Lil Nas X concerts this year, um, this idea that, you know, more and more people are spending time on there to socialize more than, than just game. And so I, I think when you imagine okay, what's this social platform going to look like 10 years from now? How is it going to look different? I think it's going to look incredibly different. The important thing is just that they have they captured the important audience here, like how Facebook captured, you know, all the college kids or, or, or is this nine to 12, you know, 12 year old demographic, the important demographic when it comes to, to capturing the users who are going to decide how, how things change in the future. I, I think they've got a pretty good shot at it. Um, you know, I guess the one criticism that folks have is that, you know, they're concentrated under folks, you know, 16 and under. Uh, but you see that in the past with, with lots of different companies that ended up being incredibly successful, right? So Pokemon, mo most successful franchise ever, also started as a video game. Um, probably only kids are playing that platform. And now it's this, this huge um, successful thing. Uh, you could talk about Fortnite, just take it, taking the world by storm, going after the same demographic. Um, I mean, same thing too with Snapchat, right? I mean, Snapchat yeah. has become incredibly yeah. successful on the back of, of just teenagers um, and, and those sorts of things, even in the face of lots of different competitors, people copying their platform. Um, I, I think Roblox has, has a great shot at it just because they've, they've got this focus on, you know, social interaction and uh, they've got lots of optionality they can build on top um, of that kind of core feature. Yeah, I remember in the S1, the management talked about how they're trying to slowly move up the age demographic, uh, because that is kind of the big worry that we discuss here, uh, is that the age demographic is mainly, you know, 18 and under, 16 and under. Um, I guess this is kind of a hard question, but can they succeed without moving up the age demographic? Or do you think that they need to slowly move up over time to fulfill, you know, the valuation if it's like $30 billion plus? Yeah, because the 11 year olds don't have super deep pockets. I exactly. Guess, for, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're spending on Robux, but <laughs> I mean, they may have some deep pockets, but not, not, not as much as someone that's like 25 or 30. 
Yeah. Um, so, so what I would just say is like, once you form a habit of how you interact with people and how you interact with your friends, it's kind of hard to break that habit over time. Um, now, like, so I first went on Facebook in like 2008, like super early on, like pre-high school. I still have a Facebook profile. I still go on there on a somewhat regular basis. Um, I know my parents were on Facebook way later um, than when I came on the platform. And now my parents and, and that generation are the people who are dominating uh, the platform, yeah. the people who use it all the time, you know, all, all the kind of core users have migrated to other places. Um, so the question is, have, have they captured enough, you know, demographic that they're going to draw other people onto the platform? And I think they have, I, I think they'll get older over time, whether that's, you know, just enough experiences being on the platform to where, you know, they have offerings for other people or like how Minecraft has become this game where people build these, you know, simulated worlds. If you want to visit King's Landing, you go on there. Like there's, there's plenty of people on the Minecraft platform that aren't kids these days. Um, so sure. I think the platform has enough optionality on, on top of it to grow into something that the people of all ages use, just like, you know, people would have said, you know, years and years ago that only young people are on Facebook. I, I think that that's kind of a, a simple explanation. I think when we look 10 years down the line, I, I think there's lots of options for this, this company to do lots of things that we don't expect. You're a GameStop shareholder. Uh, so what's your thesis around them? They're obviously a bit of a controversial name uh, because a lot of people have obviously thought they were going out of business, but they have since recovered. I haven't, I don't remember the last time I checked them, but you seem to be in uh small company there with just you, Michael Burry, and I think, uh, Jim Gillies. So, uh, what's your thesis on them? Yeah, sure. So I'd say just high level, the thesis is just the company is not going to go out of business. That was kind of what got me invested in the company, uh, to begin with first really got turned on to it in May, 2019 was doing a podcast for industry focus, talked to, uh, Buck Hartzell, who you've had on the podcast just in the past month or so. And he said, um, and we were going to talk about GameStop. And he said, hey, you need to talk to Jim Gillies. You know, he, he actually thinks they can cover this. This dividend at the time was yielding 15, uh, 19%, some, something like that. And the basic thesis is this is a company, if you looked at the balance sheet, had a net cash position, what was generating positive cash flow, and then had this catalyst coming due um, at this time, so it's 2019, about, about two years on, uh, this new console cycle. So you look historically, uh, uh, sales in the video game industry are, are very cyclical. Obviously, when the, when the new hardware comes out, there's people really excited, want to go uh, buy the new latest, greatest technology. Often there, there is a, a um, lots of games launched to exploit that new technology, all those sorts of things. So if you looked at the company today, um, you know, the, the, the company was valued at like $5 a share. Um, you had uh, uh, net cash on, on the balance sheet, but there's this narrative that it's going out of business. It's the next, it's the next um, blockbuster. So at the time then, basically all you really had to do, you, you could see, see just from a fundamental point of view, the company is unlikely to, to go bankrupt. The company is likely to survive and at least be able to support this existing valuation. And then you layer on top over 100% of the shares sold short. So, and when you're in a scenario where the company is about to print a whole bunch of cash, the company is, is because of this whole console cycle and all those sorts of things. uh, And you've got a company valued very conservatively and hundred percent of the shares are sold short. um, I just don't think there was a ton of downside for you uh, at that time. Obviously, you know, there's tons of pessimism in the market. That's why hundred percent of the float um, was sold short at the time. But the basic thesis is, is that there's a catalyst to, to, print cash for the business. They've got enough um, uh, cash on their balance sheet to meet their obligations as they come due. Um, and as that uh, console cycle thesis plays out, the shorts are going to be proven wrong. And there's a lot of you know buying uh, present in the stock. Obviously, since then, 
Uh, there's been a lot that's gone on earlier this year. Ryan Cohen, who is the, the co-founder of Chewy, has taken a really significant position, most recently up to 13% of the overall stock. Um, and so maybe the last thing to mention there, too, um, is over the next several years, I think it's the average term on their lease is two years. So they have a significant okay. portion of their leases rolling off here um, over the next couple of years. So, so obviously, there's a problem with them being overstored. But in, in conjunction with this console cycle catalyst taking place, you've got a bunch of their stores rolling off. So they should be able to, to right size um, um, the business at the same time as, as they're printing significant amounts of cash. And so when you start looking forward from here, after we're past the console cycle catalyst, we're past this idea of, of you know, based on the cash they're going to generate, you know, the company is cheaply valued. At, you know, it's definitely not as cheap today, you know, pushing around $20 a share as it was um, a while back. It's what do they do with these, with these existing assets? And they should be able to right size. And looking forward, you know, you've got this optionality of, of why is Ryan Cohen, this guy who you know has more money than he knows what to do with, has historically been very conservative with how he allocates his money. He only owns three stocks. It's GameStop, Wells Fargo, and Apple. Why is he running towards this fire? I think I think that's the other, the other thing today that's kind of changed the narrative is that, you know, sure, the valuation thing is here, but now we've got this, this great operator who has taken on Amazon and, and some of these other e-commerce folks um, and, you know, taken them down. What, what Opportunity does he see uh, to put this smaller, leaner GameStop uh, uh, to work? Right. And you did mention the blockbuster comparison. That's kind of the big thing where, and I know a lot of people like us in general were just saying, like, oh, it's just like blockbuster. I can never invest in it. But when we look over the next five years, we kind of say, like, you see that directional arrow of, you know, 99% of games may end up being downloaded over the internet or, you know, something like 95% of them. Does that concern you at all? And does GameStop have a plan to transition away from that? Are they going into say like esports accessories? Are they going to go away from the physical stores, you know, entirely? Yeah. So, so you talk about the blockbuster comparison. I guess that the easy response is just, uh, you know, you, there's like a Peter Lynch quote: "If you can't go broke, uh, if you don't have debt on the balance sheet, and if you look at yeah. you know their debt situation, they've got about seventy three million dollars in debt due in in twenty twenty one. They've got, you know." Uh, like I said, more cash than debt on, on the balance sheet should be able, easily able to pay that. The bond market reflects that. That debt's trading at 99 and a half cents on the dollar. Their 2023 debt is trading at 102 and a half cents on the dollar. Oh, Obviously, wow. the, the debt market not pricing in any risk uh, of bankruptcy. So that, that's kind of the obvious comparison. With yeah. Blockbuster, you're not going to go bankrupt if you're meeting your debts as they come due. And clearly no concern about that um, in the debt market. And clearly no concern about that when you look um, at the balance sheet. Obviously, there's this trend toward more and more digital sales of games, and certainly that's that's going to grow over time. Um, I would say the only thing, you know, there's a quote people use all the time, right? The only thing faster than change is our expectation of the rate of change. And I think you could have pointed several years back to this idea that ebooks were going to take over the book business, right? So, so my future mother-in-law is, works at Books a Million and has a significant role there. They've kind of found their bottom. Um, we talk about Best Buy a few years ago. Like, why does Best Buy need to exist? Well, there's a lot of people that want to come in and do the whole Geek Squad thing and kind of get service in person. And that's kind of where, where, where GameStop slots into. You know, I kind of give you an example. So this year I went to go get a, a game for my stepdad, right? To get him Call of Duty, the new Call of Duty game. He likes to play video games, all that sort of thing. Um, I went to Costco because I had a Costco 
gift card, right? They didn't have it at Costco. Also, the gift card didn't work. It was a whole different thing. There was a Best Buy across the street. Went over to the Best Buy looking for looking for my Call of Duty game. I walk in there. It's the big store. There's all these people over here. I go to the video game section. They're sold out. And then I go try to find somebody to be able to help me. I have to go to the front of the store, the customer service desk, and, and get help. Okay. So I go to GameStop. Now, this is bad. I'm going to GameStop last of the group. So, so don't judge that too much. But, you know, it's just all convenience. I had the gift card to start out with. So don't judge me too much. But anyway, so go to GameStop. I walk in there. Five seconds later, this guy is like, hey, what are you looking for? So I'm looking for the you know, PlayStation 4, uh, Call of Duty. I go get in the game, blah, 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 blah. And then I have to sit in line for five minutes as a grandma in front of me talks to him about all the things she's looking for for Fortnite. And she's getting the Fortnite cards for her kids and all these sorts of things. I think it's a similar demographic to these folks that we think about who still goes to Best Buy. There's a lot of those folks who are still going to be going uh, to GameStop and getting some of these uh, these games. The other thing is, you know, they have a staff that's trained that if you don't know anything about video games, you can come in there and tell them what you're looking for um, and they can help you out. They have, um, what's the number? 50 million uh, Power Up Rewards members. That means they have 50 million people's addresses and emails and all those sorts of things to contact them um, about selling games. They're really an important uh, retail sales channel for, um, for, for these console makers, right? There's only one store in the country where people slept out overnight on like their makeup, their, you know, their put together mattresses and whatnot. And that's GameStop. That that tells you something about the importance of that sales channel, at least in the near term for driving customers. You saw the same thing with the, the deal announced with, with Microsoft, where they're going to get some share of the lifetime value of customers who, who buy the consoles. I think GameStop is going to remain an important sales channel for video games, right? Is there going to be 4,000 plus stores across the country? No, but I think uh, there needs to be a specialty retailer for games. And I think, why not GameStop? And again, you talk about the leadership uh, in place that can take advantage of some of that personal relationship, personal touch. That's exactly what um, Chewy basically did, right? They put the, the the handwritten note in your box and all those sorts of things. And you hear Ryan Cohen talking about that. And we have to use this relationship we have with customers uh, to kind of drive our growth in the future. So, I mean, you can tell a story uh, for, for why they still need to exist and the niche that they can play. Uh, um, in the market. And I think when you layer on top, again, that the management that's running towards the company, I think, I think I would be shocked if Ryan Cohen isn't in some type of meaningful leadership position in the company here pretty soon, just with how aggressively he's been pushing in, uh, buying shares. And I, I don't know if you've looked at his Twitter lately, but there's some spicy, uh, spicy tweets um, that he's sent <laughs> yeah. out. But uh, so you, so you tell that story and you've got a manager who I think can be a great, you know, great at executing on that. Uh, certainly there, there's some headwinds when it comes to digitization of video games, but I think that floor on where physical games are going to be is a lot higher than a lot of people would have you believe. I don't know where it is, but I think it's higher than, uh, than we're underwriting. Okay. So it may not be the 95% like I was, uh, just estimating off of, you know, it might be lower, maybe something around, you know, 60 to 80% or something like that, which still leaves an opportunity for GameStop to thrive. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I would recommend if you're just like interested in investing in video games or just the business of video games at all, uh, you read, it's a book called One Up by uh, Yost Van Joinen. I had him on the Industry Focus podcast uh, back in in the fall. He's a professor at NYU Stern, talks about the business of video games, all those sorts of things. He had a chart in, in his book that just blew my mind, something that like two-thirds of video game sales, maybe even more than that, um, are still physical games. It's, it's surprising how much um, of the video game sales today are, are still physical, um, and I think it's much higher than you would expect if you ask the average person. So, um, Again, I, I don't think it's going to go 100% um, 100% digital, but you know I could be wrong. I'm wrong all the time, and I'll, I'll certainly be wrong again. But uh, my my suspicion is that, that that floor on physical game sales is going to be a lot higher than than folks um, folks believe. 
Yeah, it, it is funny how fast like that blockbuster narrative took over because at one point I think GameStop was trading below its net cash position. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 cl- it clouded my judgment for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think the, the idea is just is the company, you know, if you thought the company w- was going to survive, I, I think the past couple of years, it's, it's kind of been interesting, you know, in kind of middle of 2019 through when it's gone on this crazy run uh, in the fall. Definitely not as exciting here kind of pushing up against $20 as it was in like the, you know, the four, $5 area. But um, I, I don't think, you know, they're going to become the next blockbuster. They're not going bankrupt. I think you still look, I looked this morning um, on, on cap IQ, you got 69.7 million shares outstanding total. According to their data, 68.1 million of those shares sold short. That's, a, it's, that's just the shares outstanding, right? And if you want to back out strategic shareholders, then you've got over 100% of the float sold short, right? So if you want to back out Ryan Cohen's 13%, if you want to back out Hestia and Permit Capital, who have been activist investors, uh, you know, uh, trying to get claim board seats in the past couple of years, uh, and Michael Burry, all those folks together are 6 to 7%. If you take George Sherman, who's the CEO, that's another 3%. So you're just looking there at 23%. You know, if you want to take those strategic shareholders out, you're looking at you know over 100% of the shares sold short with with this catalyst kind of still in place of this console cycle earnings coming down the pike of you know Ryan Cohen looking to be you know continuing to press his short and then uh, it's not a, not a short excuse me press his kind of activist position um, in the company yeah. take a more active role and then last thing if you want if you want to you know just just play in the you know the the stock market mechanizations thing. You've got this stock with over 100% of the shares short, and it's a Wall Street bets like darling right now. You've got all the Wall Street <laughs> bets piling in, squeezing That's a dangerous on, game. Squeezing on the short side. I, I would not want to be betting against this this company right now. Whether whether you agree with me that you know the floor on on physical game sales is higher than the market thinks, or that you know the company can evolve into something that's relevant uh, um, in the future, I, I just don't know how you, you bet on the short side when there's people camping out in the guy's parking lot to try to get at one of these consoles. I just, and over hundred percent of the shares are sold short. I just, I just don't understand it, but uh, it, it still is that way. I, I still think there's probably some catalyst to send the stock up. Um, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. The wall street bets, darling thing. That's probably Burry's entire thesis right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. He's a YOLO trader. <laughs> well, he's been in for, he's been in for a long time. So it's certainly yeah. not just that, but this is one of those where it's just, it's just strange. It's it's just strange of where you've got, you know, uh, this, this activist coming in, buying up the shares, being very aggressive. Um, and, and yet that short interest is really, really held up. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but I don't know. Yeah, be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. All right. Wrap up questions. Uh, these we ask all our guests. So I'll go first. What is one financial saying that you disagree with? Yeah. So I had I had trouble uh, with this one, but I, what I went with is like I don't know if it's a saying, but I hear lots of people say it. Of if you go on Twitter, like the whole like VC community is like, just start a business. You should just start a business. Yeah. You should have a job. Just start a business. Don't go to college. Just start a business. Um, and I think, you know, obviously entrepreneurship is great and everybody should should do that. Um, you know, and yours is an investing show. I, t- I talk about investing. I think if you take it from an investing mindset point of view, right? We talk about it as an investor, you have to be able to manage a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty, curveballs get thrown at you on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes you'll see massive amounts of money kind of disappear before your eyes, especially as you get older as an investor and you have to be able to navigate that. I think that's on steroids uh, when, when you're a business owner and it's not for everybody, right? They're, like the stock market closes. There is a no point in time where, where you know, the risks to your business 
stop. Um, and, you know, you talk about the, the stock market. I think one of the super attractive things is that over time, it's a, it's a positive expected value investment. You know, if you have a diversified basket of, of, of stocks, you can hold them over time and they'll do success. You know, they'll do well. Um, you're running a business. I mean, you could foreseeably have your entire livelihood uh, into that business. And that's a level of risk and and uh, that sort of thing that I don't think is for everybody. So I think a lot of times we walk around and, and you say, oh, yeah, see, look at this guy. He dropped out of college and went and started his business and he's a millionaire today. We don't ever see all these people who who took some of those same uh, those same risks and, and things didn't work out well. I say you shouldn't start a business, but I think you should go into it uh, with open eyes. And it's not something that everybody should do. And it's definitely not as simple as the average person um, thinks. And so, you, you, you know, you asked earlier, uh, Brett about like, what's something that I learned about um, from law school or whatever that maybe helped me as an investor. It's just like, man, all the stuff that you have to worry about as someone who owns a business and all these kind of different contracts and laws and all the, all these things that, that underlie uh, uh, what you're doing. So I just say, you know, you definitely have a little bit more respect for, for the work that goes into really building and running a business and, and operating it on a day-to-day basis. It's um, you shouldn't, you know, just start a business. Yeah, that's a unique one. Uh, yes. I think it's good. So you're not getting into, into any of these SPACs with no revenue yet? No, and I, have, I haven't yet. Maybe one day, one day. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me, um, and I'll leave it to them. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'll hit the last question here. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone starting out a career in investing? Um, I guess you're, you know, an editor, so maybe you're not technically, you know, a financial analyst over there, but just anything you've learned, you know, working at the Molly Fool, how to get into that world. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I would just say, yeah, just for everybody. Yeah. These are all my own opinions. I'm just a guy on the internet with a portfolio, host a podcast sometimes. Definitely go to the, all the Motley Fool's official stock recommendations for all your official um, stock takes. So what's my advice for people that want a career in investing or want a career in finance? I think number one is just make sure that you like it. I think for any job is don't do it just because it pays a lot of money or just because you know a lot of people make a lot of money. You have to do it every day. So I, I, the, uh, the great thing about my job is I'm looking at you know kind of stories in the stock market, what's going on with companies every single day. And I like it. I find it really interesting. I would have done it for free. Um, I, I took a pay cut relative to what I could make as a lawyer to go here um, and and do this. So I'd say definitely make sure you like it no matter what your job is. Um, and then another another thing I would say, probably another thing I learned, uh, you know, in law school or whatever, is just try not to get paid by the hour if you can, no matter what job you go into. Uh, you don't want to get paid by the hour. It's not a good. It's not a good thing. So I would just say, you know, basic advice is just make sure you like it. Oh, also, you know, just don't be afraid to apply for a job, right? So I, I just kind of on a whim looked and saw there was this editor analyst position in the Motley Fool and kind of ended up ended up here. Um, you know, there there is no downside to sending an email or asking someone for advice. Or, or, you know, asking someone to coffee or, or anything like that or applying to a job, uh, you never know uh, what could work out for you. So when there's something that has lots of upside and no cost to you, that's a great investment uh, of your time. So so definitely do that. Definitely. Okay. Uh, I think that's all the questions we have. Nick, uh, thank you for joining us. So, uh, yeah, so happy to be here. I hope I, you know, I lived up to all the other guests. I think you've had so many smart people on here. I just feel so, uh, got a little bit of the imposter syndrome going on, but I hope I did, a, did an okay job. Didn't run no. too much. Where, did perfect, uh, did perfect. Where can people find you if they're- Yeah, when, when is the uh, Industry Focus Energy Show? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the Industry Focus podcast, you can check it out on any of your favorite 
podcast players, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, etc. The name of the podcast, Industry Focus. I host the Thursday edition on energy and industrials. We talk about renewable energy, oil and gas, electric vehicles, all those sorts of things. You can also check out all the other episodes throughout the week. On Monday, Jason Moser does financials. Emily Flippin does consumer goods. On Tuesday, we got Wildcard. Wednesday, where we talk about all kinds of different things. And then on Friday, uh, Dylan Lewis talks about tech. So, so definitely check that out. I think I think. Uh, the Motley Fool, all the Motley Fool podcasts, I think are super valuable to me, particularly if you're a beginning investor. It's a great way to kind of get a daily dose of the stock market in a way that's entertaining. Um, yeah. And, you know, we try not to make it overly complicated so that, you know, regular people can understand what's going on. Because at the end of the day, this stuff isn't really all that complicated, um, but, but folks try to let it, try to make it um, that way. And so if you want to find me, keep up with what I'm doing. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, at investing Nick, I uh, had to make sure I only got my first name in the Twitter handle because nobody can spell Siple. <laughs> so, you know, I figured out a handle that would let me do, make that happen. So at investing Nick, you can go find me on there. Perfect. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Welcome back in. Next up, we have hot water. I only have one. Uh, and so uh, I'll probably yeah. go first. Go you first, know what it is because you gave it to me. Yeah. Um, so it was Dorsey. Dorsey is obviously in hot water because Jack, Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. Um, so according to a Business Insider article, I think it's Business Insider, Jack Dorsey was vacationing on an island in French Polynesia this week. Probably <laughs> yeah. the biggest week in Twitter's history as a public company. Um, I feel like that's the bear thesis right there. Yeah. yeah. That's all it is. Or it's the bull thesis if you think that he's going to be gone real soon. But as long as he's there, it feels like it's just, I mean, one, it's his afternoon job. And two, he seems to be vacationing. Maybe this is in spite for everyone telling him he can go live in Africa. He's like, no, I'm going to go worse. I'm going to go live on an island in the middle of the ocean. It's so, like, come on. Like, does he not, does he not read any tweets? (laughs) Uh, Apparently not. Well, as I, as I like to brag, he did like one of our tweets before. So. I do. I think P- Paul Singer's political orientation might be the driving force behind what happens to Twitter in the next two years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, uh, that might be going a little. Maybe step he keeps too far. that separate, but I mean, if he's like, dude, you weren't even here, and you yeah. banned him on yeah. a Zoom call, you banned the president of the United States. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, the process. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there could be a lot of complaints. I mean, I mean, to be honest, like, yeah, just. You gotta be where everyone is, you know, dude. Like, what? I mean, that's it's just a it's just a bad look for Jack. Yeah, or, I mean, you're you're not broke. Fly home. Like, it's a pretty important time. Yeah, you're worth American a few history. billion. You're worth a few billion. Uh, uh, it's not gonna cost you that much. All right. Well, that's all I have. Okay. Uh, hot water is the efficient market hypothesis. EMH. Sorry, Eugene Fama. Um, which is the funniest name of all time because it sounds like you're mis saying it every time. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. All Fama. Right. Fama is, is Why is it hot water? Okay, well, um, Elon Musk, who I can't say anything else about. Wait, when are we starting this? Uh, it's on January 12th. He's not. But that's he's today not part, when people are listening. I know, but he's not starting the, he's not part of the deal. I just can't. Okay. He tweeted, or I can say someone tweeted, use Signal in reference to um, the private messenger app because WhatsApp's going to start giving their data to Facebook and shares of Signal Advance, a company that has nothing to do with this app, um, have shot up over a hundred times since then. Yeah. It's, it's great stuff. Great stuff. That's sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. Huh? He just trounced like every hedge fund manager's return. Anyone that accidentally <laughs> owns Signal Advance. 
Just, I don't know who's owning that, but it was. Uh, I think it was worth what would be because it's at like a one billion dollar market cap now. Imagine if this is like some deep value play, and someone's been sitting there in like a micro cap value yeah, strategy. It was definitely a micro cap before, <laughs> and all of a sudden they return. <laughs> they like wake up one day. I mean, but you can't. Well, I guess oh, it'd be pretty easy to sell into that. Wow. That'd there's also this new. There's a parlor with like ER. I was thinking that would be a great business to be in right now. Huh? Wait, what do you mean, ER? Uh, P-A-R-L-E-R. Oh, it's, a, it's a public to, company? No, it's not a public company, but the app, like I looked it up to see if it was on the uh, oh, Apple right, Store. Oh, right, right, whole thing, yeah. And there was this like different parlor. I'm like, uh, that would be, yeah. I'd love to be the CEO of that company right now. Free marketing right there. Okay, my next one is Billionaire Condos. Um, oh, a condo tragic. on Billionaire's Row in New York City just had a 51% resale loss. Tough look. Being a person of means, um, it just doesn't mean what it used to. It would really suck to be a billionaire right now. Yeah, I would hate it. I would hate what it so much. What a tragedy. Yeah. All right, next. <laughs> uh, SPAC naming. So I think um, I think this, uh, these names are getting Is this ridiculous. Queen's Gambit? No, there's Queen's Gambit one, uh, but these are even worse. So we had a Cobra Kai SPAC last week, which is all based off of that. Oh, I've um, seen the show, yeah. Yeah, there's a Cobra Kai one. Um, and then this week we had the LMF Acquisition Opportunities or LMFAO SPAC. And their oh. ticker, I think, is LMAO. So it, it's the these the YOLO, whatever, the, the Wall Street bets, the Robinhood traders. They're leaning into they're, it. They're SPACs the market, are leaning yeah. into Wall Street bets right now. Yes, they are. Because they, they know what can happen. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's, it's an interesting name for SPAC for sure. Kind of um, brilliant, honestly. Yeah, it's good marketing, I guess. WSB should be the next ticker. Yeah, I mean, that'd be fun. Yeah. I don't know. All right. You got any more? Last one. Yeah, Robinhood haters. So what do you think about this? Uh, the company is apparently mulling, quote, mulling. That's kind of the corporate speak for when someone's thinking about something. Uh, they're mulling, selling shares directly to its clients for its IPO. So it's just... It's just an infinite. That's I mean that's the real infinite I, money loop or whatever. I was thinking to call about it. this. It, what if they give away free shares of Robinhood uh, to people that are plugging like the Robinhood promotional thing? You know how you get the free yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Is there a violation there? Mm, Is there any value created there either? No, there's no value created there. But it, it reminds me of that guy. Uh, it was a kid on you know FinTalk the FinTalk Investors <laughs> Twitter page who was saying that everyone needs to buy Robux and then go buy the Roblox IPO. I think we talked about this in the interview. Oh, we did. Yeah. yeah. Or we may have talked about it offline. Yeah. But that example as well, um, it, it feels very similar to this, but in real life. It's, uh, it's a flywheel effect. Yeah, it is the real flywheel. Um, okay. That's all you have, right? Yep. Buy, sell, hold. The theme this week is uh, regulated companies that get broken up. So if okay. big tech gets broken up, that, oh, so what parts would you uh, – so buy, sell, hold, it's three different parts of those companies, okay, so okay, companies okay. within companies. I have AWS, Instagram, and YouTube. And let me just say, if the debate comes down to like big tech should be broken up over censorship, I am totally on board because I would <laughs> love to buy some of the parts of these companies independently, you know, like AWS on its own. That'd be great. If, and if it all happens because of censorship or fake censorship, yeah, yeah. Either way, I mean, I'm I'm gonna be on that. I'm gonna be in the camp. Let's break them up. 
Yeah, I mean, I've always thought a lot of these companies should be broken up just for, for value uh, creation. Well, not for value creation, just <laughs> for other means that might make actual sense. But uh, okay, value. Have a well, we don't know the valuation, so I'm I'm like it's just businesses. I mean, AWS is the best business, and then probably uh, I it's think Instagram. Like YouTube. I know Instagram seems to have more momentum, but YouTube seems more permanent to me. What you know about what I mean? WhatsApp? No, I threw that on there. No. Oh, okay. Oh, wait. They don't make any money off it right now. What about Waymo? Waymo? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> no, right now, I mean, right now, I mean, right now, I don't know. The valuation it would get it would be a lot higher than the valuation I would pay because that's, I mean, that's a classic Kelly Criterion bet. It seems like they have a, you know, they're going to lose them a lot of money. It seems like they have, what, like a 25% chance of success. The potential returns are super high, but only if you buy it at the right price. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd go YouTube ahead of Instagram just because so you'd sell I, think, Instagram. I think there just is a small risk that these social media apps, um, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of, there's more risk to Instagram being usurped than YouTube. There's not even a sniff of anyone getting close to usurping YouTube. Yeah, I agree. Well, Quibi, watch out. Watch out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, you're right. I do think, uh, I don't know. I feel like everyone's like Facebook's got this impenetrable moat, and yeah, as a conglomerate, they do maybe. But uh, I don't think Instagram's impenetrable. I'm no, sure TikTok not. has reduced the hours people spend on Instagram. Discord, Roblox, yeah. yeah. There's right. other stuff out there. Well, don't forget about Kappa. The kids <laughs> on Roblox can't be on Instagram. <laughs> oh, right. uh, what do you mean? What Child do you mean? online privacy and protection ah, act. Right, right. Okay. Thing that Shamoth. Okay. Shout oh, with young, young Investor 12. Yeah, <laughs> RIP Young Investor 12. We're, we're feeling for you there. Uh, anecdotal evidence. I really don't have much this week. And we. I just sat around for an hour reflecting on everything I did this week. This is kind of when we do that is when I'm thinking about anecdotal evidence. Um, and it's pretty sad. It's kind of depressing that I don't have a single anecdote. Yeah, winter, winter's, in, winter's in Seattle during a quarantine. Really not much to do. I will say um, Twitter, if there's ever time – to make it a subscription, now is the time. Or, I mean, yeah. You've been given a golden opportunity to yeah, be like, all right, you're only allowed on if you pay. Yeah. yeah. Or not. I mean, yeah, that is true. It does come back to the the fact that like Twitter is a, you know, we're in a free market and uh, Twitter can make their own choices. No shoes, no shirt, no service kind of deal, right? Yeah. All right. What's your anecdotal evidence? Uh, okay. Uh, I know a lot of people like lemonade. I know a lot of people we know. The drink? Uh, not, no, not the drink, the company. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. sorry, I should have uh, disclosed that there. Uh, but does this constitute a red flag to you? So CEO Shay Winninger. Shy. Uh, shy. Gosh, Might be Shay, okay. actually. Uh, who has been selling many shares of his stock into this amazing rally. I think I saw a number of $60 million worth, which good for you. Uh, he tweeted about short sellers on Seeking Alpha and disinformation trying to like, you know, classic, like similar to Elon Musk type deal, which I guess. I think you mean similar to Trevor Milton. Trevor Milton. Yeah. Excuse me. And, uh, um, yeah. and he said that they're just trying to drive down the stock. Does that constitute a red flag to you? I hate when, I do hate when people, uh, the great CEOs don't spend their time bothering with short sellers. No, the only, well. Reed Hastings did, but he didn't do it like in a two-minute quip. He wrote like an essay on what they're doing and why. Like it was basically an essay outlining their business strategy. And he was saying like, I give you good luck. We're not going to tell you to stop doing this, but 
this is where we're going. And we think we have a great opportunity here. You know what I mean? Also, the only reason he did it is because he, the guy that shorted it serves on some board of uh-huh. like a school, like, oh, okay, a, okay. like a low income school area thing, uh, some initiative they're doing. And he's like, I don't want you to lose money. So I'm going to send you a letter on all the reasons your short report is wrong, um, mm. which that's like he wouldn't have done it if he didn't care. And so now like Bezos wasn't spending time worrying about it. Like it is the biggest red flag for me. If, yeah. if he took to Instagram Live, that's a bigger red flag. <laughs> oh, is that uh, – that's the old Milton? Yeah, Trevor was like, I'm just so disappointed that these people are trying to make yeah, money off Yeah, dude. Me. I'm so – I feel so proud that I was – that I called uh, Nicola being a fraud like in May or June. Yeah. That's one of my – that's one of my – You weren't the only one. I felt like everyone thought it was. No, no, not, not in May or June. It was a rendering. It was a picture of a truck. Yeah. That's a, Yeah, well, that, that happened in July. Well, right. maybe I can't pat myself. In yeah, it's a bit of a red flag. My a bigger red flag for me with lemonade is that like disrupting businesses. Like, people are like, "Well, insurance ripe is ripe for disruption." It's like those companies are around for have been around for a hundred years for a reason. Yeah, they might be wasting a ton of money on and low overhead specials. isn't a competitive advantage in my no. opinion. No, no, no. And they're just selling insurance for less than it costs. But I don't know if that can work in the long. As a customer, I'll take it. Oh, I'm going to use Lemonade if I have to get insurance. So they were wrong. For sure. Yeah, I mean, whatever. If you want to sell me something for less than it's worth, go redhead. It's got a good story though, you know? I get, I, mean, I guess some stocks that get bought up a little too much always have to have a good story, but it's got a, like, disrupting the legacy players, you know? Oh, yeah. They, they definitely tell a good narrative with that charity stuff too. They tell a great narrative. Yeah, and I don't think that's all, you know, it's bullshit. Not like, like, yeah, it's not bullshit at all, but it's, I mean, when a CEO's Taunting short sellers. We all know about the great short squeeze. Uh, that you know, yeah. is a definite red flag for me because there's so many companies out there, and you want ma- management's the most important part. Also, management, business model, valuation. If you're completely legit and you're going to disrupt insurance, who cares what short sellers say? Yeah. Unless you're the one selling shares and it's lowering the price, like yeah, that, then maybe it's a concern and something to be upset about. But yeah, I don't know. I guess. We do have a lot of people that like lemonade, so yeah. Sorry hope they do. Hope they do. Hope they do well. Not betting against the company. Really hope they do well. All right, is that it? That is it. Okay, we want to remind our listeners that we're not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Uh, oh, leave an Apple review because they help. Yes, yeah, definitely. We. I, I might stop what, saying that. No, no, no. We we okay. Let's play. Let's make it a game. If you leave a review and it's funny, you make a good joke, or you can roast us or something like that for shorting a company I can't name anymore. Uh, then, yeah, you know, we'll read it on the show. It'll be fun. But yeah, the five star reviews they they really, they definitely how to help out. And we fixed our audio, so the people complaining about that. Um, yeah, we made it. You know, <laughs> we got a brand new pop filter. Yeah, we spent a whole. Like fifty bucks. We spent like yeah. For two. We spent like two thousand satoshis on that. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, that's it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.